0: Yeah, we're doing great. Um, so this morning, the barista at Starbucks had these lovely antlers, and I couldn't think of the word, and I told her, I love your head. <laughs> <Banned>. <laughs> um I, I'm sure she didn't notice the awkward pause. Um, so uh, welcome, everybody. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, today, we are starting a new teaching series called The Complexities of Hope that will run for the next four Sundays and take us right up to Christmas Eve, which also happens to be the fourth Sunday of Advent this year. Um, I took this out of my notes, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, Despite what your Advent calendars say, Advent didn't start December 1st, and it doesn't always start December 1st. It actually started December 3rd this year. So I got two bonus chocolates on my Advent calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, now we're going to stick to the script. Uh, So let's talk about that word hope in the title for a minute. We all know that Christmas is supposed to be a time of hope and joy and peace. Even if you've never stepped foot in a church building or heard a single sermon, it would be hard to go through this season without running into that idea somewhere. The overwhelming message we are bombarded with this time of year by both the church and the secular world is that Christmas is a time for celebration, cheerfulness, goodwill, generosity, And glitter on absolutely everything. (laughs) And so we celebrate, some of us willingly, others not so much. Maybe you're on board with the message of hope and peace and joy, but you'd rather do your celebrating in a more quiet, introverted way. Or maybe for you, Christmas is a time of painful memories, disappointments, and loss. Maybe Christmas involves strained family gatherings that you'd love to find a way out of. Or maybe you're simply a Grinch, and you hate the sound of children's laughter. (laughs) Good, I gotta laugh. Uh, So obviously I'm kidding about that. But there's something about the holiday cheer during the season that does often feel kind of forced, manufactured. It's as if the Christmas season doesn't care what kind of a day you're having. You're gonna have a holly jolly time whether you like it or not. But the truth is that we all wanna feel a little bit of that Christmas magic, right? Um, Friday, I went downtown, uh, going to a regular Friday night event that I go to and discovered that there was no parking anywhere downtown. Um, and I knew that it was going to be the tree lighting in front of the mission, but I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. It's a big tree and some twinkle lights. But I, I misestimated how much people would want to see Santa and some snow in Ventura. Uh, So I drove around for 20 minutes, tried to find parking, gave up and went home kind of cranky that I couldn't go to my normal event. Um, But I think as I was driving, I thought, man, do people need something joyful in their life that much that they're willing to walk half a mile with their kids just to see a tree lights get turned on? And I, I think that Well, I'm going off script again. Um, What are we actually celebrating during this season? Most of us who've grown up hearing the Christmas story have a neat and tidy version that we can recite by heart. Mary and Joseph traveling by donkey to their hometown of Bethlehem, an inn that has no room, a manger for a bed, a star, some shepherds, angels singing, three wise men, maybe even a little drummer boy for good measure. The savior of the world is born, and boom, peace on earth. We know how the story goes, and honestly, we might be a little tired of it. But in real life, hope isn't that easy. When hope shows up, it's usually in the darkness. And even though we still don't know what's going to happen, hope shows us the possibility that things can change for the better. We don't usually find hope when things are simple and straightforward. We find it in the complicated, ambiguous, uncertain places in life. We find hope in the shadows when we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Today I'd like to look at one part of the Christmas story in light of that reality and think about what it means that God sent hope to some of the unlikeliest places through some of the most unexpected people. Today I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 5 and I'm using the English Standard Version. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Luke starts his story by telling us approximately when it's taking place, during the time when Herod was the king of Judea. This was likely a time when there wasn't a lot of hope among the people of Israel. The Jews have been living either in exile or under waves of occupation by various enemy nations for most of their long history. The most recent of those enemy nations was the Roman Empire which had conquered Jerusalem and surrounding Judea in 63 BC. Now, if you have any familiarity with this story at all, you know that Herod wasn't very well-liked. First of all, even though he was technically Jewish, he didn't come from a long line of Jews. His family had only converted two generations ago on his father's side, and that was somewhat suspect. He was a citizen of Rome, and he was only ruling under the authority of Caesar. So even though he was Jewish, it was clear that wasn't where his loyalties were. He was known for being artistically sensitive, politically strategic, clever, cruel, and given to suspicion. Luke also introduces us here to our first character, an old Jewish priest named Zechariah. Unlike Herod, Zechariah, along with his wife, could trace their Jewish ancestry all the way back to the time of Aaron, the first high priest and the brother of Moses. And we learned that they were both righteous people who followed God. But despite their righteousness, they hadn't been rewarded with children. Now, remember, this wasn't a time when people decided whether or not they wanted to have children as a lifestyle choice. Children, especially sons, were a blessing. Not being able to have children was often considered a curse. So right away, Luke presents us with a puzzle a righteous couple who haven't been rewarded for their piety and upright way of life, living in a time when corrupt, oppressive rulers are prospering. Luke doesn't immediately tell us where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived, but later on, we'll find out their home was in the hill country of Judea, in a village outside of Jerusalem. Their priestly ancestry would have given them some social status within their village, but within the greater political and religious hierarchy at the time, well, that was a different matter. Even though Rome allowed the Jews to worship according to their own traditions, that doesn't mean that it was without interference. In her book, The First Advent in Palestine, which uh, we as the teaching team have been reading, it's right here, it's very good. Um, I put a mention of it in the uh, sermon notes if you're interested in looking it up yourself. Um, Where was I? Um, Kelly Nikondeha is the author. And she says the following about the priesthood at the time. She says that it was a precarious time to be a priest. Herod played politics with the priesthood, appointing priests from other regions and promoting those who aligned with his interests. He destabilized the expected order in order to create anxiety for ordinary priests. Every new change in the priesthood functionally demoted priests like Zechariah, who came from a priestly line. Under the increasing economic strain of Caesar's tribute and taxes, people could hardly pay temple tithes. The tithes were collected by the high priests and used to subsidize their opulent lives in the temple precincts of Jerusalem. What little remained went to the local priests. During Herod's tenure, Zechariah the priest got even lessening, ever lessening support. So you may have heard this term, Pax Romana, before, the so-called Roman peace. This was an unprecedented time in history when a large portion of that part of the world was united under the banner of a single nation, Rome. Caesar had done what no one else had been able to do, and he ended, for a time, the endless cycles of war throughout the region. It was a time of prosperity and peace and order if you were among the Roman elite and those that they supported in positions of power. If you were among the common folk in Judea, The Roman peace was just a new form of oppression. You would have been expected to pay excessive taxes to Rome, as well as tithes to the temple. Families weren't left with much to survive on. It was a time of evictions and foreclosures and economic stress and malnutrition. Scholars estimate that nine out of ten people were living at the subsistence level, barely getting by with the bare necessities of life. And this is the world in which Zechariah was a village priest. He probably worked some kind of trade to supplement whatever small income he received from the temple tithes for his priestly duties. A son would have been a blessing to Zechariah as someone to carry on the family name and help provide income. A son would have also helped secure Elizabeth's precarious future if her husband died and left her widowed and without a means to support herself. So the Jewish priesthood that Zechariah was a part of was divided into 24 different divisions And each of these divisions was called upon twice a year in regular rotation to serve at the temple in Jerusalem for a week. And on this particular rotation for his division, Zechariah was chosen randomly by lot to serve a very special duty. The altar of incense Zechariah would tend to was right outside the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, which could only be entered by the high priest. This was such a high honor that any given priest was only allowed to do it once in his lifetime, So imagine the contrast between the world of Zechariah's impoverished village, where people barely had enough to eat, and the world of the Jerusalem temple. The wealth of the priestly elite was on full display. The golden incense burners, the rich cloth of the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the smell of burning meat permeated the air. As someone who is truly righteous, I can imagine that seeing the disparity between Zechariah's day-to-day life and the lives of the religious leaders must have weighed heavy on him. But then something amazing happened. Let's read on. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John and he will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of power and Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the ju- of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I have to imagine this would have been a very overwhelming experience for Jeremiah. First, he's chosen to get as close to the Holy of Holies as anyone could ever hope to be. While he's there, an angel of God speaks to him and gives him miraculous news. Even though he and his wife should be too old to have children, God is going to bless them with a son. And not just any son, but a son who's going to be a big deal. Unlike many of the prophecies that Zechariah would have been familiar with as a devout priest, Gabriel's proclamation proclamation isn't about a coming judgment or a punishment. Instead, their son will be a blessing and bring joy to many. And he will bring reconciliation and restoration and renewal. And to top things off, after expressing some rather understandable surprise and confusion um, on the part of Zechariah, The angel tells Zechariah that he will be unable to speak until after his son is born. So he can't tell people what happened. He can't discuss what the angel told him with his soon-to-be-pregnant wife. And you have to imagine that it made his job as a priest more difficult, both in the temple and back home in his village. So let's take a look at the next verses and see how Elizabeth responds. After all, even though her husband was the one who entered the temple and spoke with God's messenger, She was the one who was going to carry this baby for the next nine months. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Luke doesn't say a lot about Elizabeth here, but he does give us a picture of a woman who saw her pregnancy as a response from God directly to her. She doesn't say... The Lord has made me pregnant as a blessing to my husband so that people will stop talking about him behind his back. She says, The Lord has done for me to take away my reproach among people. So it's likely that if people were whispering about anyone for the couple's childlessness, they were blaming Elizabeth. And she recognizes that God has shown grace to her specifically through this pregnancy. And what's even more remarkable about Elizabeth's response is that she didn't have any details about what the angel told her husband. So it's possible that she'd heard about his vision through word of mouth, but Zechariah still wasn't able to talk. So any details he gave her would have been mimed or scratched with a tablet and stylus. And I don't know this for sure, but I imagine she probably couldn't read. Um, And she must have had questions like, Why now? Why couldn't God have blessed them with a child when she was young and full of energy? Why did he wait until she was old? But for Luke's purposes in telling her story, any questions that Elizabeth might have had aren't important. What Luke wants to get across is that Elizabeth saw God at work in the world through her. Let's keep going. But for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize some of the story. So next, Luke tells us about how the same angel of the Lord visited a young girl named Mary in the city of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And here's a little bit of background. Nazareth is about 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem, and life there was very different than life near the city. Galilee was known for being a region of political unrest, protests, and uprisings. Thanks to popular songs, we have this picture of Mary as being meek and mild, but in reality, she was probably neither. As a young woman growing up in such a precarious place and time, she was probably tougher than we give her credit for and well acquainted with hardship and injustice all around her. Mary, as we know, was also engaged to be married to Joseph. But God's angel throws an unexpected wrench in that plan when he tells her that before she can be married, she's going to become pregnant with the Son of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he also tells her that her older relative Elizabeth is also miraculously six months pregnant. And that's where I want to pick up in the scripture. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The more I read these lines and reflect on the experiences of these two women, the more beautiful their stories become to me. Notice how the angel describes Elizabeth here. Her who was called barren. The word barren evokes images of a parched, lifeless landscape. And in contrast, Luke paints a picture of not one but two pregnant women who by all rights, shouldn't be producing life. One, because she's too old. The other, because she's not yet married. And when they meet, the life that's growing within Elizabeth leaps in recognition of the miracle growing inside Mary, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit falls on Elizabeth. Despite whatever trauma they've experienced and all their hardships, these two women have this moment together where they're able to celebrate that. Just as the angel told Mary, Nothing will be impossible with God. Scripture tells us that Mary spent three months with Elizabeth, and we can only imagine how they spent that time. Doing normal household work, yes, but also sharing stories, Mary learning from her older relative's life experience and wisdom, and perhaps daydreaming together about the world that their sons would inherit and the future that they would shape. I have one more quote I wanna share from Kelly Nicuneta um, and as I, and I adding it back in last moment, so I've got to open up my book, but I will have the band come up while I'm doing that and we will wrap this up. Um, so Kelly points out that this isn't the only time that the phrase blessed are you among women has appeared in the Bible. Um, in the old Testament, there is a passage in the book of Judges where Deborah, the prophetess and judge is praising Jael, um, who has just killed the army commander Sisera uh, by, dry, by tricking him and driving a tent stake through his head. And Jael sings this, or Deborah sings this song that starts basically, blessed are you among women. She uses slightly different words in Uh, the ESV, but I don't have it in front of me, and then describes in graphic detail, blessed are you amongst women for viciously murdering this army captain. And now he lays dead at your feet. And here is what Kelly says. She says that Elizabeth's reprisal comes as a glorious twist since Mary will embody nonviolent participation in the advent of God's peace. And Elizabeth's verse will add a new understanding of deliverance opening space for women in the future to engage tumultuous times anew to effect change. Everyone who heard the song's beginning would assume they knew how it ended. But Elizabeth and Mary, under the auspices of the spirit, understood the song as pointing in a new direction. Advent ushered in a new era in which women are blessed for their acts of peace, not participation in violence. Um. Sorry, I had an ending that just got shuffled. Uh, Yes, here it is. So in the story of Advent, we see God working through unexpected people, an ordinary village priest and his aging wife, a young, unwed virgin in a town far away from the temple where God's presence was thought to dwell. We see God choose these relative nobodies to start planting the seeds of a new story of hope in the midst of poverty and injustice and generational trauma, these two women would raise sons who would start a process of turning the known social order completely upside down, but not through violent revolt. The kingdom that John paved the way for and that Jesus ushered in was like no other kingdom that ever had existed or ever will exist. And we, as followers of Jesus today, have the privilege to continue the revolutionary work of sowing peace and hope wherever we find darkness in the world.